I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, but in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Hi! Oh, you've reached the mansion of Glenn here on the Leaves of Glenn podcast. You, you found me in my drawing room here near the fire sound effect. Uh, this is where I read the hottest public domain books and short stories. This week, we're reading uh, more chapters uh, from David Copperfield by Charles Dickens. It's the eighth novel by Charles Dickens, uh, first published in uh, 1850. Uh, before that, it was uh, published as a serial from 1849 to 1850. Uh, it is widely considered his most popular work. Oh, about the author. Sure, let's learn about him. I'm running out of things to say with him for every new episode and every, every chapter. There's so many in this book. He was born on the 7th of February, 1812. He died the 9th of June, 1870. I don't know why I feel like that's important to point out in every episode. But I've been reading from uh, The Unparalleled Necromancer, an article written about him uh, in mentalfloss.com or whatever, where he apparently used to be a magician, and boy, he loved being on the stage. Uh, He did this as a famous author, and uh, apparently he was weird. Uh, So, this is the uh, third part of this article, because I am desperate to find anything to say about this man. Not long after the publication of the Pickwick Papers in 1837, Dickens did a reading of Nicholas Nickleby. That was on the same bill as Ramo Sammy, a famous juggler and magician. That'd be weird seeing a juggler and magician on the stage and all of a sudden like an author gets up and just reads some of his book. A few years later, he went to see a performance by a renowned Austrian magician named Ludwig Dobler. At the time, uh, Dobler was at the height of his fame and had performed all across Europe for the likes of the Austrian Emperor Francis I. Francis I. Let's just say Francis I. Why get fancy with these people? And while in London... Queen Victoria, hmm. And he spent much of his professional life uh, designing and manufacturing his own unique stage props, including a, oh, a magical pistol <laughs> that was able to light a hundred candles all at once, and a, and, a, and a bottomless wine bottle from which any drink imaginable could be poured on request, all of which helped him put, a truly, uh, put on a truly remarkable show. So that's fun. Uh... I guess to waste time before the big grandfather clock goes off and tells me when to shut up, we'll uh, recap the previous chapter. Uh, In the previous chapter, David finally meets some of the kids at his school, mainly the ones he has to share a bedroom with. The oldest, weirdly, where they stick an older one, who's like, what, 27? uh, With all these children in the same room, uh, talks David into uh, giving him all his money. And says, oh, I'll hold on to it. Oh, keep it safe. So, of course, it's all building up. You're like, eh, this guy's going to take his money. He's going to bully him and take his money. 
And then he says, oh, no, I'll even buy stuff with it. Go on, tell me what you want. You want, you want some bread? Huh? You want some, you want some cheese? And then he actually goes and buys all of it, uh, including wine, which is weird. Why did they let this child, a big child, buy wine? I don't know. Anyways, he actually buys the stuff, and he brings it back to the room where him and apparently like 20 kids live in. Uh, and then there's a lot of underage drinking going on and gossiping about the teachers and uh, the headmaster and uh, what a bunch of losers they are. Apparently, this is like some weird second-rate school run by people that have never really been in the profession before. Uh, then he, everyone goes to sleep. David, who is uh, uh, smitten with this older, wiser shepherd of children, basically watches that guy sleep. So that was disturbing. Uh, that's pretty much it. I plowed through that. Got nothing else to say. And the grandfather clock isn't going off yet. Uh, what's going on in my life? Unemployment. Uh... <sighs> Hung out with my kids. Oh, thank God. Didn't want to have to start talking about that stuff. I have nothing exciting to say. Uh, well, with that, why don't we dive into the story? Well, uh, this is going to be a long one, I can already tell, because I flipped through the pages. Uh, if you don't like it, uh, don't listen. No one asked you to come here anyways. Into my mansion now, uh, here in the library of the Leaves of Glen Mansion. Uh, you don't want to listen to a long one? I don't care. Get out! Yeah, I'm surly. I'm not going to have a job pretty soon. I'm already spending way too much time by myself at home. Uh, it's just going to get worse, and I'm not going to get any nicer. Chapter uh, 7. My, quote, first half, unquote, at Salem House. School began in earnest next day. Ah, ha, ha. A profound impression was made upon me, I remember, by the roar of voices in the schoolroom, suddenly becoming... Hushed as death when Mr. Creakle, burp, entered after breakfast and stood in the doorway looking round upon us like a burp. Jeez, I'm, this is not a strong start to this episode. Like a giant in a storybook surveying his captives. Uh, Tungay stood at Mr. Creakle's elbow. He had no occasion, I thought, uh, to cry out, uh, Silence! So ferociously, for the boys were all struck speechless and motionless. Mr. Creakle uh, was seen to speak, and Tungay was heard uh, to this effect. Uh, now, boys, this is a new half. Take care uh, what you're about in this new half. Come fresh up to the lessons. I advise you, for I come fresh up to the punishment. Oh, I won't flinch. It'll be of no use you're rubbing yourselves. What? You won't rub the marks out that I shall give you. It's disturbing on a couple of levels there. Uh, I shall give you... Uh, now get to work, every boy! Ah, when this dreadful extreme was uh, over, Mintungay was stumped out again. Mr. Creakle came up uh, to where I sat and told me that if I were famous for biting, he was famous for biting too. Is he still wearing the sign? 
Then he showed me the cane and asked me what I thought of that. Uh, For a tooth? Was it a sharp tooth? Hey? Was it a a double tooth? What the hell is going on? Hey? Had it a deep prong? Hey? Did it bite? Hey? Did Did it bite? At every question, he gave me a fleshy cut with it that made me writhe. So I was very soon made free of Salem House, as Steerforth said, and was very soon in tears also. Not that I mean to say that these were special marks of distinction, uh, which I only received. On the contrary, a large majority of the boys, especially especially the smaller ones, were visited with similar instances of notice as Mr. Creakle made the round of the schoolroom. Half the establishment was writhing and crying before the day's work began. And uh, how much of it had writhed and cried before the day's work was over, I am really afraid to recollect, lest I should seem to exaggerate. I should think there never can have been a, a man who enjoyed his profession more than Mrs. Mr. Creakle did. He was a, a delight in cutting up boys, which was the satisfaction of a craving appetite. I am confident that he couldn't resist a, a, ooh, a, a chubby boy. Especially that there was a fascination in such a subject, which made him restless in his mind until he had scored and marked him for the day. I, oh, I was chubby myself. And ought to know. I am sure when I think of the fellow now, my blood rises against him with the disinterested indignation I should feel if I should have known all about him without having ever been in his power. But it rises hotly. "'cause I know uh, him to have been an incapable brute "'who had no more right to be possessed of the great trust he held "'than to be Lord High Admiral or uh, uh, Commander-in-Chief, "'in either of which capable uh, capacities uh, "'is probable that he would have done infinitely less mischief. "'Miserable little proprietors of a remorseless idol.' How abject we were to him! Exclamation point. Uh, what a launch in life, I think of it now, on looking back, to be so mean and servile to a man of such parts and pretensions. Here, I sit at the desk again, watching his eye, humbly watching his eye, as if rules a, a ciphering a book uh, for another victim whose hands have just been flattened by the identical ruler, and who is trying to wipe the sting out with a pocket handkerchief. I have plenty to do... I don't watch his eye in idleness, but because I am morbidly attracted to it, in a dread desire to know what he will do next, and whether it will be my turn to suffer, or uh, somebody else's. A lane of small boys beyond me, with the same interest in his eye, watch it too. I think he knows it, though he pretends we don't. He makes dreadful mouths as he rules the ciphering book. And now he throws his eyes sideways down our lane, and we all droop over our books and tremble. A moment afterwards, we are again eyeing him, an unhappy culprit, found guilty of imperfect exercises, uh, approaches at his command. The culprit falters, excuses, and professes a determination to do better tomorrow. Hey, Mr. Creakle, yeah, he cuts a joke before he beats him. And we laugh at it, miserable little dogs. Oh, we laugh with our visages as white as ashes and our hearts sinking into our boots. Here I sit at the desk again on a drowsy summer afternoon. A a buzz and hum go up around me as if the boys were so many blue bottles. What? 
A cloggy sensation of the lukewarm fat of meat is upon me. In parentheses, we dined an hour or two ago. And my head is as heavy as so much lead. Oh, I give the world to go to sleep, to sit with my eye on Mr. Creakle, blinking at him like a, like a young owl. When sleep overpowers me for a minute, he, he still looms ah, through a slumber, ruling those ciphering books until he softly comes behind me and wakes me to plainer perception of him with a red ridge across my back. Here I am in the playground with my eyes still fascinated by him, though I can't see him. The window, at a little distance from which I know he is having his dinner, stands for him. And I, I, and I eye that in instead. If he shows his face near it, mine assumes an imploring and a submissive expression. If he looks out through the glass... The boldest boy, Steerforth accepted, stops in the middle to shout or yell and becomes contemplative. One day, Traddles, the most unfortunate boy in the world, breaks that window accidentally eh, with a ball. I shudder at this moment with the tremendous sensation of seeing it done and feeling that the ball was bounded onto Mr. Kriegel's sacred head. Poor Traddles, in a tight, sky-blue suit that made his eh, arms and legs look like German sausages or roly-poly puddings. <laughs> he's the merriest and most miserable of all the boys. Ah, he's always being caned. I think he was caned every day uh, that half year, except one holiday, Monday, when he was uh, only rulered on both hands. It was always going to write to his uncle about it, and uh, eh, never did. After laying his head on his desk for a little while, he would cheer up somehow, begin to laugh again, uh -huh, and draw skeletons all over his slate. <laughs> before uh, That's a dark side to a person painting a happy face. Uh, before his eyes were dry, I used to, at first, uh, to wonder what comfort Traddles found in drawing skeletons, and for some time looked upon him as a eh, sort of hermit. He reminded himself by those symbols of mortality that Caning uh, couldn't last forever. But I believe, so he's got this weird outlook on life. But I believe he only did it because they were easy and didn't want any features. He was very honorable, Traddles was, and held it as a solemn duty in the boys to stand by one another. I suffered for his on several occasions, and particularly once when Steerforth uh, yeah, left in church. And the beetle thought it was Traddles and took him out. I see him now going away in custody, despised by the congregation. He never said uh, who was the real offender, though he smarted for it the next day and was imprisoned so many hours that he came forth with a, with a whole churchyard full of skeletons, swarming all over his Latin dictionary. But he had his reward. Uh, Steerforth said there was nothing of the sneak in Traddles, and that we all felt that to be the highest praise. For my part, I could have gone through a, a good deal, though I was much less brave than Traddles and nothing like so old, to have won such a recompense. To see Steerforth walk to church before us, arm in arm with Miss Creakle, uh, was one of the great sights of my life. I don't think Miss Creakle equal to little Emily in point of beauty, and I don't love her. I didn't dare. But I thought her a young lady of extraordinary attractions and in point of uh, gentility not to be surpassed. When, 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 when Steerforth, ah, in, in, white, in, in white trousers, 
carried her parasol for her, I felt proud to know him and believed that she could not choose but adore him with all her heart. Mr. Sharp and Mr. Mel were both notable personages in my eyes, but Steerforth, this is not going in a good direction, was to them what the sun was to two stars. Well, stars are suns. I don't know where that's going. Steerforth continued his protection of me and proved a very useful friend. Since nobody dared to annoy one whom he honored with his countenance, he couldn't, or at all events he didn't, defend me from Mr. Creakle, who was very severe with me. But whenever I had been treated worse than usual, he always told me that I wanted a little of his pluck and that he wouldn't have stood uh, it himself, which I felt intended for encouragement, and considered to be very kind of him. There was uh, one advantage, eh, only one that I know of in Mr. Creakle's severity. Uh, He found my placard in his way when he came up or uh, down behind the form in which I sat and and wanted to make a cut at me uh, in passing, and for this reason it was soon taken off, and I saw it no more. Well, an accidental circumstance uh, cemented an intimacy between Steerforth and me uh, in a manner that inspired me with great pride and satisfaction, though it uh, sometimes led to inconvenience. It happened uh, on one occasion when he was doing me the honor of talking to me in the playground that I hazarded the observation that something, uh, or somebody, I forget what now, was like something or somebody in uh, Peregrine Pickle. And he said nothing at the time, but when I was going to bed at night, he asked me if I got that book. Now, I told him no, and explained how it was uh, that I had read it and all the other books of which I had made mention. Uh, do, you, mm, do you recollect them? Steerforth said. Oh, yes, I replied. I had a good memory, and I believed I recollected them very well. Then... I tell you what, young Copperfield, said Steerforth, you you shall tell him to me. I can't get to sleep very early at night, and I generally wake rather early in the morning. We'll go over them one after another. We'll, we'll make some regular Arabian nights of it. <laughs> I felt extremely flattered by this arrangement, and we commenced carrying it into execution that very evening. What ravages I committed on my favorite authors in that course of my interpretation of them, nah, I'm not in a condition to say, and would be very unwilling to know, but I had a profound faith in them, nah, and I had, to the best of my belief, a, nah, a simple, earnest manner of narrating what I did narrate, and these qualities went a long way. Oh, the drawback was that I was often sleepy at night, or out of spirits, and uh, eh, indisposed to resume the story, and then it was rather hard work, and it must be done for to disappoint or to displease Steerforth was, of course, out of the question. In the morning, eh, too, I felt very weary and should have enjoyed another hour's repose very much. It was a tiresome thing to be browsed, like the Sultana Sharonazd, Sherherazd, not going to look it up, not going to figure out how to pronounce it, and forced into a long story before the getting-up bell rang. But Steerforth was resolute, 
and as he explained to me in return my sums and exercises and, and anything in my tasks that was too hard for me, I was no loser nah, by the transaction, and let me do myself justice. However, I was moved by no interested or selfish motive, nor was I moved by fear of him. I admired and loved him, and his approval was return enough. It was so precious to me that I look back on these little trifles now with a, with a, ooh, an aching heart. Steerforth was considerate, too, and showed his consternation in one particular instance and in an unflinching manner that was a little tantalizing. I suspect to poor Traddles and the rest, Peggotty's promised letter. Oh, what a comfortable letter it was, exclamation point, arrived before, quote, the half, unquote, was many weeks old. With it, a cake in a perfect nest of oranges and uh, two bottles of cowslip wine. Really? More wine? What? This kid's like nine years old. The treasure, as in duty-bound, I laid at the feet of Steerforth and begged him to dispense. Yeah, there's kind of like an unhealthy thing going on with him and Steerforth. Now, I'll tell you what, young Copperfield, said he. The wine shall be kept to wet your whistle while you are storytelling. I blushed at the idea and begged him in my modesty not to think of it. Oh, but he said he had observed I was sometimes hoarse, a little rupee was his exact expression, and should be every drop devoted to the purpose he had mentioned. Accordingly, it was locked up in his box and drawn off by himself in a file and administered to me through a piece burp of quill in the cork. When I was supposed to be in want of a restorative, sometimes to make it a, a more sovereign specific, he was so kind as to squeeze orange juice into it, mm, or to stir it up with, with ginger, or dissolve a peppermint drop in it. And although I cannot assert that the flavor was imposed by these experiments, or that it was exactly the compound one would have chosen for the stomach. Oh, they spelled that weird. S-T-O-M-A-C-H-I-C. -C. Well, I'm not going to look it up. That seems like a weird spelling of stomach. The last thing at night was the first thing in the morning. Oh, I drank it gratefully. It was very sensible of his attention. Yep, still not healthy. We deemed to me to have been months over Peregrine and months more over the other stories. The institution never flagged for want of a story. I am certain, and the wine lasted out almost as well as the matter. Oh, poor Traddles. I never think of that boy, but with a strange disposition to laugh. That's horrible. And with tears in my eyes was a, a sort of chorus in general and affected to be convulsed with mirth at the comic parts and to be overcome with fear. When there was any passage of uh, an alarming character in the narrative, uh, this rather put me out very often. It was a great jest of his, I recollect, to pretend that he couldn't keep his teeth from chattering whenever mention was made of an all-gozzle in connection. Okay, I'll look it up. I don't want to, but I'm going to do it. Yep. There's nothing for it. We'll never figure out what an all-gozzle is. In connection with the adventures of Gil Blas. And I remember that when Gil Blas met the captain of the robbers of Madrid and the unlucky Joker counterfeited such a, an aug of terror that he was overheard by Mr. Creakle, who was 
prowling about the passage and handsomely flogged for disorderly conduct in the bedroom. Mm. Mm -hmm. Whatever I had within me uh, that was romantic and dreamy was encouraged by so much storytelling in the dark. And that respect the pursuit. That may not have been very profitable to me, but being cherished as a kind of a plaything in my room and the consciousness that this accompaniment of uh, mine was brooded about among the boys and attracted a good deal of notice to me, though I was the youngest there, stimulated me to my exertion. Oh, in a school carried on by sheer cruelty, whether it is presided over by a, by a dunce or not, uh, there is likely to be much learnt, L-E-A-R-N-T. I believe our boys were generally as ignorant a set as uh, eh, any schoolboys in existence. <laughs> they, they were too much troubled and knocked about to learn. They could do no more than to take advantage than anyone could do anything to advantage in a life of constant misfortune, uh, torment, and worry. God, that was a long that was like a page and a half before I got to a period. But my little vanity and Steerforth's health urged me on somehow and without saving me from much, if anything, in the way of punishment, made me, for the time I was there, an exception to the general body, insomuch that I did steadily pick up some crumbs of knowledge. In this, I was much assisted by Mr. Mel who had a liking for me that I am grateful to remember. It always gave me pain to observe that Steerforth treated him with systematic disparagement and seldom lost an occasion of wounding his feelings or eh, inducing others to do so. Eh, this troubled me the more for a long time because I had soon told Steerforth, eh, from whom I could no more keep such a secret than I could keep a, a cake eh, or any other tangible possession, about the two old women, Mr. Mel had taken me to sea, and I was always afraid that Steerforth would let it out and twit him with it, and twit him. I'm looking up twit. A silly or foolish person. Okay. We, uh, bah, little thought, any one of us, I dare say, when I ate my breakfast that first morning and went to sleep under the shadow of the peacock's feathers to the sound of the flute, hmm, which consequences would come out from the indoctrination of those almshouses of my insignificant person. But the visit had its unforeseen consequences, and of a serious sort, too, in their way. Oh, one day, when Mr. Creakle uh, kept the house from indis indisposition, which naturally diffused a lively joy through the school. There was a, a good deal of noise in the course of the morning's work. The great relief and satisfaction experienced by the boys made them difficult to manage. And though the dreaded Tungay brought his wooden leg uh, in twice or thrice and took notes of the principal's offenders' names, uh, no great impression was made by it, as they were eh, pretty sure of getting into trouble tomorrow do what they would, and thought it wise, no doubt, to enjoy themselves today. It was, eh, properly, a half-holiday, being Saturday. But as the noises in the playground would have uh, disturbed Mr. Creakle, and the weather was not favorable for going out walking, we were ordered 
into school in the afternoon and set some lighter tasks than usual, which were eh, made for the occasion, period. That was another insanely long one without a period. It was the day of the week on which Mr. Sharp went out to get his wig curled. <clears throat> so Mr. Mel, who had always did the drudgery, eh, whatever it was, eh, kept school by himself. If I could associate the idea of a, of a bull or a, a, a bear... With anyone so mild as Mr. Mel, I should think of him in connection with that afternoon when the uproar was at its height, as one of those animals baited by a thousand dogs. I recall him bending his aching head, supported on his bony hand, over the book on his desk, and wretchedly endeavoring to get on with his tiresome work amidst an uproar that might have been made a, a speaker of the House of Commons. <laughs> Giddy. Boys started in and out of their places, playing a, at puss <laughs> in the corner with other boys. Well, they were laughing boys, uh, singing boys, uh, talking boys, and uh, uh, dancing boys, howling boys. Boys shuffled with their feet. Boys whirled about him, grinning and making faces, mimicking him behind his back and before his eyes. Mimicking, mimicking his poverty. His boots, his coat, his, his mother, everything belonging to him that they should have had consideration for. Silence! cried Mr. Mel, suddenly rising up and striking his desk with the book. What does this mean? It's impossible to, to bear it. Oh, it's maddening. How can you, how can you, how can you do it to me, boys? It was my book that he struck his desk with. And as I stood beside him, following his eye, as it glanced around the room, I saw the boys all stop. Some suddenly surprised, some half afraid, and some, eh, eh, sorry perhaps, Steerforth's place was at the bottom of the school, at the opposite end of the long room. Ah, he's lounging with his back against the wall, eh, hands in his pockets. Ah, he looked at Mr. Mel with his mouth shut up, as if he were, nah, as if he were whistling. Mr. Mel looked at him. Silence, Mr. Steerforth, said Mr. Mel. Nah, silence yourself, said Steerforth, turning red. Whom are you talking to? Well, sit down, said Mr. Mel. Nah, sit down yourself, said Steerforth, and mind, and mind your business. Oh, there was a titter, and uh, some applause. But Mr. Mel was so white that silence immediately succeeded. And one boy, who had darted out behind him to imitate his mother again, changed his mind and pretended to want a, eh, want a pen mended. If you think, Mr. Steerforth, said Mr. Mel, that I am not acquainted with the power you can establish over any mind here, he laid his hand without considering what he did, as I supposed, upon my head, or that I have not observed you within a few minutes, urging your juniors on to every sort of outrage against me. You are mistaken. Meh, I don't give myself the trouble of thinking about you at all, said Steerforth coolly. So I'm not mistaken as it happens. And when you make use of your position of favoritism here, sir, pursued Mr. Mel with his lip trembling, oh, very much, to insult a gentleman, ah, uh, nah, a what, 
Where is he? <laughs> said Steerforth. Here? Oh, somebody cried out. What does that sound like? <laughs> and then it just goes into shame, Mr. Steerforth. Too bad. It was Traddles. Oh, he's. I thought he was just crying out like, ha ah! in the back. <laughs> but no, he's crying out saying, Shame, Jay Steerforth. Too bad. It was Traddles, who Mr. Mel instantly discomforted by a bidding him to hold his tongue. I would have liked it better if uh, Traddles just went, ha, <laughs> out of shock. To insult one who is not fortunate in life, sir, and who will never give you the least offense and the many reasons for not insulting whom you are old enough and wise enough to understand, said Mr. Mel, with his lips trembling more and more, you commit a mean and base action. You can sit down or stand up as you please, sir Copperfield, go on. Nah, young Copperfield, said Steerforth, coming forward up to the room. Stop a bit, I tell you what. Mr. Mel, once and for all, when you take the liberty of uh, calling me mean or base or anything of that sort, you are an impudent beggar. Ouch. You're always a beggar. Ouch. You know. But when you do that, you're an impudent beggar. Ouch. I am not clear whether he was going to strike Mr. Mel or Mr. Mel was going to strike him, or there was any such intention on either side. I saw a rigidity come upon the whole school, as if they had been turned into stone, and found that Mr. Creakle in the midst of us with Tunga at his side and Mrs. and Miss Creakle looking in the, the door as they were frightened. Uh, Mr. Mel, with his elbows on his desk and his face in his hands, sat for some moments, quite still. Uh, Mr. Mel, said Mr. Creakle, shaking him by the arm, and his whisper was so audible now that Tungay felt it was unnecessary to repeat his words. You have not uh, forgotten yourself, I hope. Oh, no, sir, no, returned the master, showing his face, shaking his head, and rubbing his hands in great agitation. No, sir, no, I have remembered myself. I know, Mr. Creakle. I have not forgotten myself. I I have remembered myself, sir. I, I, I could wish you had remembered me a little sooner. Mr. Creakle, it, it would have been more kind, sir, more just, sir. It would have saved me something, sir. Mr. Creakle, looking hard at Mr. Mill, put his hand on Tungay's shoulder and got his feet upon the forum close by, and sat upon the desk. After still looking hard at Mr. Melton, was he, wait, what? So Mr. Creakle puts his hand on Tungay's shoulder, and then he sits on the desk that Tungay's sitting at? What is going on here? <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> All right, fine, whatever. It's like a puppet show. Like, ah, now he's a puppet. It's just weird. It's odd. After still looking hard at Mr. Mel from his throne, as he shook his head, he rubbed his hands and remained in the same state of agitation. And Mr. Creakle turned to steer forth and said, uh, Now, sir, as he don't condescend to tell me, what is this? Oh, Steerforth evaded the question for a little while, and looking at scorn and anger at his point, and remaining silent, I could not help thinking, even in that interval, I remember well, what a noble fellow he was in appearance, and how homely and plain Mr. Mel looked opposed to him. What did he mean? By talking about favorites then, said Steerforth at length. Uh, favorites? repeated Mr. Creakle, with his 
veins in his forehead swelling quickly as he's like sitting on this desk like a like a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, who talked about favorites? I eat it, said Steerforth. And pray, what did you mean by that, sir? demanded Mr. Creakle, turning angrily on his assistant. I meant, Mr. Creakle, he returned in a low voice, as I said, that no pupil had a right to avail himself to his position of favoritism to degrade me. Yet yeah, to degrade you, said Mr. Creakle, my stars. But give me leave to ask you, Mr. Uh, What's-your-name. And here, Mr. Creakle folded his arms, cane and all, upon his chest. It made such a knot of his brows that his, his, uh, his little eyes were hardly visible below them. Whether when you talk about favorites, you showed proper respect to me. To me, sir, said Mr. Creakle, darting his head at him suddenly and drawing it back again. The principal of this establishment and your employer... It was not uh, judicious, sir, I am willing to admit, said Mr. Mel. I should not have done so if I had been cool. Here, Steerforth struck in. Yeah, when he said I was mean, and then he said I was base, and then I, I called him a beggar. If I hadn't been cool, yeah, perhaps I shouldn't have called him a beggar. Uh, but I did. And I am ready to take the consequences of it. Ooh, well, look at him. Without considering, perhaps, whether there was any consequences to be taken, I felt quite in a glow at this gallant speech. It was a gallant speech. And it made an impression on the boys, too. There was a low stir among them, though no one spoke a word. I am surprised, Steerforth, although your candor does you uh, honor, said Mr. Creakle. Uh, does your honor, sir, the, I am surprised, Steerforth, I must say, that you should attach such an epithet to any person employed and paid in Salem House, sir. Steerforth gave a short laugh. What does that sound like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not an answer, sir, said Mr. Creakle. To my remark, I expect more than that from you, Steerforth. If Mr. Mel looked homely in my eyes before the handsome boy, oh, he's really focused on this boy. It would be quite impossible to say how homely Mr. Creakle looked. Let him deny it, said Steerforth. Deny that he's a beggar, Steerforth, cried Mr. Creakle. Why, where does he go a-begging? <laughs> A-begging. Yeah, if he's not a beggar himself, his near relation's one, <laughs> said Steerforth. It's all the same. He glanced at me and Mr. Mel's hand gently patted me upon the shoulder. I looked up with a flush upon my face and remorse in my heart. But Mr. Mel's eyes were fixed on Steerforth. Oh, he continued to pat me kindly on the shoulder, but he looked at him. Eh, since you expect me, Mr. Creakle, to justify myself, said Steerforth, and to say that I, what I mean, what I have to say is that his mother, nah, lives on charity, yeah, in a, in a, in an almshouse. <laughs> Mr. Mel still looked at him and still patted me kindly on my shoulder. What is going on with the patting on the shoulder thing? This is odd. He said to himself in a, in a whisper, uh, if I heard it right, yes, I thought so. Mr. Creakle turned to his assistant with a severe frown and labored politeness. Now, you hear what this gentleman says, Mr. Mel. Have the goodness, if you please, to set him right before the assembled school. Oh, he's right, sir, without correction, returned Mr. Mel, in the midst of a dead silence. What he said is true. 
Now be so good, then, as declare publicly, will you? said Mr. Creakle, putting his head on one side and rolling his eyes around the school. Whether it ever came to my knowledge until this moment? Uh, I believe not directly, he returned. Why, you know not, said Mr. Creakle. Don't you, man? I apprehend you never suppose my worldly circumstances to be very good, replied the assistant. You know what my position is and always has been here. I apprehend, if you come to that, said Mr. Creakle, with his veins swelling again, bigger than ever, that you have been in a wrong position altogether and mistook this for a charity school, Mr. Mel. We'll, be, we'll, we'll part, if you please, the sooner the better. Oh, there is no time, answered Mr. Mel, rising, like the present. Uh, sir, sir, to you, said Mr. Creakle, I take my leave of you, said Mr. Creakle. And all of you, said Mr. Mel, glancing around the room and again patting me gently on the shoulders. James Steerforth, the best wish I can leave you is that you may come to be ashamed of what you have done today. At, at present, I would prefer to see you... Uh, anything rather than a friend to me or anyone in whom I feel an interest. Well, with that, uh, why don't we take a little break? Why don't we kick our shoes off, huh? Why don't we head to the master bedroom? Just you and me. Let's, uh, let's go in there. Let's get wet. Let's have a good time. All right? And I will read to you uh, a new romance novel that's coming out soon. Ah, there you are. Prepared for me on the romantic bed here in the master bedroom. Wearing your silky outfit, but that's not what I want. Tonight I want to get nerdy. Tonight we're going to LARP. Put on this wizard's outfit. As I read to you uh, a new upcoming romance novel called A Lady's Formula for Love by Elizabeth Everett. Uh, it's part of the Secret Scientists of London line of books. Doesn't say anything about uh, if she's a New York Times bestselling author. No, she's not. Oh, well, that's disturbing. That's another person who's too lazy to get their name plastered on that. Uh, about a lady's formula for love? What is a Victorian lady's formula for love? Mix one brilliant noblewoman and her enigmatic protection officer, add in a measure of danger and attraction, heat over the warmth of humor and friendship, and the result is more than simple chemistry, it's, it's elemental. Lady Violet, nah, she's keeping secrets, first she is found in a clandestine sanctuary for England's most brilliant female scientist, second, she's using her genius on a confidential mission for the crown. But the secret, the biggest secret of all, oh, her feelings for protection officer Arthur Knelland, Nelland, Snelland, solitary and reserved, Arthur learned the hard way to put duty first. But the more time he spends in the company of Violet and the eccentric club members, the more his best intentions go up in flames, literally. When a shadowy threat infiltrates Violet's laboratories, endangering her life and her work, scientists and bodyguard will find all their theories 
put to the test and learn that the most important discoveries are those of the heart. So, that turd fest is coming out February 9th, 2021. Eh, well, I'm not aroused anymore. Might as well take off the wizard outfit and uh, put on your normal clothes. And we'll head back into the library and, and finish this book. Well, let's pick up where we left off as uh, Mr. Mel is uh, being forced to resign because of his terrible, terrible family secret that his mom is poor. Once more, he laid his hand upon my shoulder and then taking his flute and a few books from his desk and leaving the key in it for a six... I forgot he plays the flute. And he went out of the school uh, with his property under his arm. Mr. Creakle then made a speech through Tongay, in which he thanked Steerforth for asserting, uh, though perhaps too warmly, the independence and respectability of Salem House, in which he wound up by shaking hands with Steerforth while we gave three cheers. This is weird. Everyone's celebrating that they got a poor person to leave. I did not quite know uh, what for, but I suppose Steerforth, and so joined in them ardently, though I felt miserable. And Mr. Creakle... Then came Tommy Traddles for being discovered in tears instead of cheers, and accounted Mr. Mel's departure and went back to his sofa or his bed or wherever he had come from. We were left to ourselves now and looked very blank, I recollect, on one another. For myself, I felt so much self-reproach and consternation for my part in that what had happened that nothing would have enabled me to keep back my tears but the fear of Steerforth, who often looked at me, I saw, might think it unfriendly, or, yeah, I should rather say, considering our relative ages, that the feeling with which I regarded him undutiful if I showed the emotion uh, which distressed me. Oh, he's so into this guy, he won't even show his real feelings. Much like every relationship I've ever been in. He was very angry with Traddles and said he was glad he had caught it. Poor Traddles. Yeah, who'd passed the stage of lying with his head upon his desk and was relieving himself as usual with a, with a burst of skeletons. Uh, said he didn't care. Mr. Mel was ill-used. Who has ill-used him? You, you girl, said Steerforth. Wow, Steerforth's a monster. Why, you have returned Traddles, and Traddles is a hero. What have I done, said Steerforth. What have you done, retorted Traddles, hurt his feelings and lost him his reputation. His feelings, replied Steerforth disdainfully, his feelings will soon get the better of it. I'll be bound. His feelings are not like yours, Miss Traddles. <laughs> As to his uh, situation, which was a precious one, yeah, wasn't it? Do you suppose I am not going to write home and take care that he gets some money? Eh, Polly? We thought this intention very noble in Steerforth, uh, whose mother was a widow and rich and would do almost anything it was said that he asked of her. We were all extremely glad to see Traddles so put down, so exalted Steerforth to the skies, especially when he told us, as he condescended to do, that what he had done had been done expressly for us and for our cause, and that he had conferred a great boon upon us by unselfishly doing it. But I must say that when I was going on with a story in the dark that night, Mr. Mel's old flute 
seemed more than once to sound mournfully in my ears. Oh, I would have liked if he's just standing outside the building playing his flute mournfully. But, nope, he's imagining it. And that, when at last Steerforth was tired, and I lay down in my bed, I fancied it playing so sorrowfully somewhere that I was quite wretched. I soon forgot him in the contemplation of Steerforth, who, in an easy, amateur way, and without any book, he seemed to me to know everything by heart, took some of his classes until a new master was found. The new master... Uh, came from a, uh, a grammar school. And before he entered on his duties, dined in the parlor one day to be introduced to Steerforth, Steerforth nah, approved of him highly and told us uh, he was a brick, whatever that's supposed to mean, without exactly understanding what learned distinction was meant by this. I respected him greatly for it and had no doubt whatever of his superior knowledge, though he never took the pains with me. Not that I was anybody... Uh, that Mr. Mel had taken. There was only one other event in this half year out of the daily school life that made an impression upon uh, me, which still survives. It survives uh, for many reasons. One afternoon, when we were all harassed into a state of dire confusion, and Mr. Creakle was laying about him dreadfully, Tungay come in, called out in his usual strong way, Visitors for Copperfield. Ooh, a few words were interchanged between him, Mr. Creakle, as who the visitors were, and uh, what room they were to be shown into. And then I, who had burp according to custom, stood up on the announcement of being made and felt quite faint with astonishment, was told to go back, uh, back stairs, the back stairs, go to the back stairs. I screwed that up. It got a, a, clean, a clean frill on. I cannot read anything, and I'm burping like crazy. Before I repaired to the dining room, these orders I obeyed. In such a flutter and hurry of my young spirits as I had never known before. And when I got to the parlor door, and the thought came into my head that it might be my mother. I had only thought of Mr. or Miss Murdstone until then I drew back my hand from the lock. And stopped. Uh, yeah, to have a sob before I went in. At first, I saw nobody feeling a pressure against the door. I looked round it, and there, to my amazement, were Mr. Peggotty and Ham ducking at me with their hats. and sque They're hiding behind the door, like every mystery or murder. Like, they, he opens the door, and they, like, sneak behind it. Is that what's happening right now? And squeezing one another against the wall. I could not help laughing. Nah, but it was much more the pleasure of seeing them than the appearance that they made. We shook hands nah, in a cordial way. And I laughed, oh, and laughed until I pulled out my pocket handkerchief and wiped my eyes. Mr. Peggotty, you never shut his mouth once, I remember, during the visit. What? Just sitting there, slack-jawed. Showed great concern when he saw me do this and nudged Ham to say something. Uh, 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 cheer up, Master uh, Davy Boar, said Ham in a simpering way. Why, uh, uh, how you've grown. Am I grown? I said, drying my eyes. I was not crying or anything in particular that I know of, but somehow it it made me cry to see old friends. Growed, Master Davy Boar. What is Boar? Is it boy? Question mark. Ain't he growed, said Ham. Ain't he growed, said Mr. Peggotty. Ah, they made me laugh again by laughing at each other. 
And then we all, uh, then we all three laughed until I was in danger of crying again. This is weird. Do you know how Mama is, Mr. Peggotty? I said, and how my dear, dear old Peggotty is. Uncommon, <laughs> said Mr. Peggotty. And little Emily and Miss Gummidge. Uncommon, said Mr. Peggotty. On big long M dash common. There was a silence. Mr. Peggotty, to relieve it, took two prodigious lobsters and an enormous crab and a, and a large canvas bag of shrimps out of his pockets. What? How big are his pockets? And piled them up in Ham's arms. You see, said Mr. Peggotty, knowing as you were partial to a little relish with your whittles when you was along with us, we, we took the liberty. Uh, the old mother, mother, biled M, she said. Mrs. Gummidge, Biled M. Yes, said Mr. Peggotty. I don't like how they talk. Slowly, who I thought appeared to stick the subject on account of having no other subject ready, Mrs. Gummidge, I do assure you, she biled him. I expressed my thanks, and Mr. Peggotty, after looking at Ham, who stood smiling sheepishly over the shellfish, uh, without making any attempt to uh, any attempt to help, and said, uh, "We come, you see, the, the wind and tide making in our favor, in, in one of our Yarmouth lugs to Gravesend. Uh, my sister, she wrote to me the name of this here place, and wrote to me if I ever chanced to come to Gravesend, I was to come over and inquire for Master Davy and give her duty with two O's, humbly wishing him well and reporting of the family." Uh, that they was common, oh, uncommon. Toby Sure, T O E B E S U R E, Toby Sure. Little Emily, you see, oh, I shall write to my sister when I go back, as I see you, and uh, as you was similarly uh, uncommon, and so we uh, make it quite a merry go rounder. Now, nah, nah, I was obliged to consider, although before I understood that what Mr. Peggotty meant by this figure, expressive of a complete circle of in intelligence, and I thanked him heartily, and said with a consciousness of reddening that I suppose little Emily ah, was altered too, since we used to pick up shells and, and pebbles on the beach. Ah, she's getting to be a woman. That's what she's getting to be, said Mr. Peggotty. Ask him, in italics. He meant ham who beamed with delight and assent over the bag of shrimps. Her, her pretty face, said Mr. Peggotty, his, his own shining like a light. Her, her learning, said Ham. Uh, her writing, exclamation point, said Mr. Peggotty. Why, it's as black as jet. And so large it is, you might see it anywheres. Uh, the way she writes. It was perfectly delightful to behold with... What enthusiasm Mr. Peggotty became inspired when he thought of his little favorite. Oh, he stands before me again, his bluff hairy face uh, irradiating with a joyful love and pride, for which I can find uh, eh, no description. Eyes, honest eyes fire up and sparkle, as if their depths were stirred by something bright. His broad chest eh, heaves with pleasure. His strong, uh, loose hands clench themselves in his earnestness. And he emphasizes what he says with a right arm that shows, in my pygmy view, like a sledgehammer. Ham, 
was quite as earnest as he. Oh, I dare say they would have said much more about her if they had not been abashed by the unexpected coming in Steerforth, who, seeing me in a corner speaking with uh, two strangers, stopped in a song he was singing and said, I don't know, uh, you were here, young Copperfield, for it was not the usual visiting room, and crossed by us on his way out. Well, I'm not sure whether it was in the pride of having such a friend as Steerforth, or in the desire, he's a horrible person, or in the desire to explain to him how I came to have such a friend as Mr. Peggotty, that I called to him as he was going away. But I said, modestly, good heaven, how it all comes back to me this long time afterwards, big M dash, exclamation point, don't go, Steerforth, if you please. These are two Yarmouth boatmen, very kind, good people, who are relations of my nurse and who have come from Gravesend to see me. They're poor. They live in a boat. Steerforth is going to like them. He's going to, like, make fun of them, probably send them away. Aye, aye, said Steerforth, returning. I am glad to see them. How are you both? Now, there was an ease in his manner, uh, a gay and light manner it was, but not swaggering which I still believe to have been born a kind of enchantment with it. I still believe him, in virtue of his carriage, his animal spirits, uh, oh, his delightful voice, oh, his handsome face and figure, and, for aught I know, of some inborn power of, a, of attraction, besides which I think few people possess, to have carried a spell with him to which it is natural weakness to yield, in which not many persons could withstand. I could not but see how pleased they were with him and how they seemed to open their hearts to him in a moment. "'You must let them know at home, if you please, Mr. Peggotty,' I said, "'when the letter is sent that Mr. Steerforth uh, is very kind to me, "'and that I don't know what I should ever do without him.' "'Nonsense!' said Mr. Steerforth, with an exclamation point, laughing. "'You mustn't tell him anything of the sort. Uh, "'And if Mr. Steerforth ever comes into Norfolk or Suffolk,' said Mr. Peggotty, "'I said, while I am there, you may depend upon it, "'I shall bring him to Yarmouth, if he will let me, to see your, to see your house. "'You never saw such a good house, Steerforth. It's, it's, uh, "'It's made out of a boat.' Now, here we go. This is where Steerforth goes south. Made out of a boat, is it? said Steerforth. It's the right sort of house for such a thorough-built boatman. So tis so, sir, tis sir, uh, said Ham, grinning. You're right, young gentleman. Master Davy bore gentleman's right. A thorough-built boatman, whore, whore. That's what he is, too, exclamation point. Well, Mr. Peggotty was no less pleased than his nephew, though his modesty forbade him a claim of personal compliment. So vicious, or er, vociferous, I'm going to, let's look that one up. Vociferously, no? Vociferous, yeah, vociferously. Well, sir, he said, bowing and chuckling and tucking the ends of his neckerchief in his breast, I thank ye, sir, I thank you. I do endeavors in my line of life, sir. "'The best of men can do no more, Mr. Peggotty,' said Steerforth. Uh, he had got his name already. "'I'll pound it. It's what you do yourself, sir,' said Mr. Peggotty, shaking his head. "'There are just—everyone's just glad-handing each other now. "'Everyone's just getting into this. "'And what you do well, right well. I thank you, sir. "'I'm obliged to you, sir, for your welcoming manner of me. "'I'm rough, sir, but I am ready.' 
least he says that again. Leastways, I hope I'm ready. You understand. I don't know what he means. My house ain't much for to see, sir, but it's hearty at your service if you ever should come along with Master David to see it. I'm a a regular Dodman, I am, said Mr. Peggotty, by which he meant a snail. I have no idea what any of that meant. And his was all the illusion of being slow to go. Uh, for he attempted to go after every sentence and had somehow or other come back again. But I wish you both well, and I am. Uh, yeah, I wish you happy. Ham echoed this sentiment, and we parted with them in the heartiest manner. Ah, and I was almost uh, tempted that evening to, to tell Steve uh, Steerforth about pretty little Emily, but I was uh, too tempted to mention, yeah, don't tell her about that because. Steerforth already got worked into a lather over a, a fantasy sister he might have. Don't talk about pretty little Emily. He's going to go diving into that whole thing. And too much afraid of his laughing at me. I remember that I thought a, a good deal and an uneasy sort of way about Mr. Peggotty having said that she was getting on to be a woman. But I decided that was nonsense. Yeah, we transported the shellfish, or uh, the relish, as Mr. Peggotty had modestly called it, up into our room unobserved. And then where do they put it? It's got to stink up the whole room. And made a great supper that evening. How? On a hot plate? What are they doing? But Traddles couldn't get happily out of it. Uh, he was too unfortunate even to come through a supper like anybody else. He was taken ill in the night. Quite prostrate he was, in consequence of crab. And after being drugged with black draughts and blue pills, to an extent which Demple, whose father was a doctor... Uh, said was enough to undermine a horse's constitution. He received a caning and six chapters of Greek Testament for refusing to confess. The rest of the half year, this poor guy, he's like the only hero of this whole story. Uh, the rest of the half year, as a jumble of my recollection of the daily strife and struggle of our lives, of the waning summer and the changing season of the frosty mornings, when we were rung, uh, rung out of bed, and the cold, cold smell of the dark nights when we were rung into bed again. Of the evening schoolroom, dimly lighted and different warmed. They have school in the evening? How long do their school days last? Out of the morning schoolroom, which was nothing but a great shivering machine of the alternation of the boiled beef with roast beef and the boiled mutton with a roast mutton. Of clods, of bread and butter, dogs eared, lesson books, cracked slates, Tear blotted copybooks, uh, canings, rulerings, hair cuttings, rainy Sundays, suet puddings, and a dirty atmosphere of ink surrounding all. I remember well, though, uh, how the distant idea of the holidays, after seeming for an immense time to be a, a stationary speck, uh, began to come toward us and to grow and grow. How from counting months we came to weeks. And then to days, and how I then began to be afraid that I should not be sent uh, for when I what I learned from Steerforth that I had been sent for, and I uh, was certain to go home, had dim forebodings that I might break my leg first. How the breaking up day changes place fast and last from the week after next to next week, uh, uh, this week, uh, the, the day after tomorrow, and, uh, uh, and tomorrow. Uh, today, tonight, <laughs> when I was, what the heck was that sentence? When I was inside the Yarmouth Mail, uh, and going home. Oh, I had, uh, many a broken sleep inside the Yarmouth Mail, 
and many an incoherent dream of all these things. But when I awoke at intervals, the ground outside the window was not the playground of Salem House, and the sound in my ears was not the sound of Mr. Creakle giving it to Traddles, the hero of the book, but the sound of the coachman touching up the horses. Wow. That was a nice little ending. Uh, With that, let's retire into the smoking room to review what we've read. Oof. There was a lot in that story, uh, or in this chapter. But, uh, who would have thought of group of kids hanging out would have so much uh, dynamics going on there. Uh, so many complicated situations. It's a lot to unpack. Uh, so why don't we recap the story so far? Uh, Mr. Creakle loves to beat the crap out of people. He's constantly doing it for no reason. Just hitting him with a cane constantly or a ruler or whatever. Uh, we learn about Traddles. Cute little guy. Uh, He's got a lot of demons. He's got a whole dark side to him. But uh, but he never snitches. He's constantly the foil for Creakle. He's just getting the poop beat out of him over and over and over again. Uh, but uh, he's never guilty, and he's always uh, never telling who's the real problem. Uh, we learn that Traddles is a chubby man. And we also learn that David is chubby, apparently, as well. So that was uh, a little thing we got to learn. Because... Creakle loves to beat the poop out of chubby kids. Uh, so we learned that for that reason. Uh, James Steerforth, he, uh, he decides to backsass uh, Mr. Mel during one of their classes. And, uh, oh, he backsasses him good. He's got a real, real sass mouth. And uh, then things go real south. At first you're like, oh, here he goes. Uh, James Steerforth, the oldest kid, and uh, no one ever beats him. And, and so uh, here we go. We get to see the hero rise up against the oppressors. Now he turns on Mr. Mel and um, points out that Mr. Mel's mom is poor and that Mr. Mel comes from a poor family. And that is the straw that breaks the camel's back for Mr. Creakle. Uh, So basically, uh, Mr. Mel has to quit right there on the spot in front of the kids and everything. So none of this, they they don't have HR or anything. This is all a a bad show. Uh, And there's Steerforth. Uh, he hates poor people, apparently. So, yep, you gotta go. So, Mr. Mel, the whole time this conversation has happened, keeps patting David on the shoulder. I don't know why. It's weird. But I guess you're supposed to feel empathy for Mr. Mel as he's showing kindness to David while he's being forced to resign because there is no HR representative to step in and say, take him into a different room. Uh, talk to him about how being poor is inappropriate. Always. Uh, and then and then ask him to leave without the students watching. Uh, but for no reason, David loves Steerforth through the whole thing. Then, for no reason, one day, Mr. Peggotty and Ham show up to visit him. And they're super poor. The way they talk is poor. Everything about them is poor. But they brought a bunch of shellfish with them. And, uh, randomly, Steerforth's just wandering around with his hands in his pockets, kicking cans, whistling to himself, being real, you know, self-satisfied little jerk. Uh, he comes in, he gets to meet them, and for some reason doesn't judge them for living in a boat for a house uh, instead of a mansion that Steerforth probably 
requires of everyone he speaks to. Uh, probably because they had all that lobster there waiting for them. So uh, that's probably the reason why it's so sweet. But uh, in the end, they bring all the lobster and everything else uh, up to their bedroom and just start eating it, I guess, raw. It makes no sense. They're traveling, the Peggotties, with this lobster. I'm sure it's warm. The lobster is like a type of ocean bug. And uh, that ocean bug's meat had to have gone kind of sour at that point. But uh, they don't cook it. They don't have a hot plate in their room or anything like that. Uh, so I guess they're just eating it raw in the bedroom. Uh, Traddles. Ah, he doesn't feel good because he's got a sensitive stomach. He's a sensitive, chubby boy. And uh, so he gets sick. And the next day, the, you know, of course, Mr. Creakle is like, why, why are you sick? And just beats the crap out of him. Uh, but Traddles won't snitch. And that's pretty much the end of the story. Well, uh, so, uh, what's good about what we read today? Uh, Traddles, a humble, sensitive little boy who's really the hero out of this whole thing. Uh, not Mr. Steersforth or whatever the heck his name is. Uh, what sucks is uh, Steersforth. I'm not saying his name right. Yeah, Steersforth. He's the jerk because he is an elitist and he loves rich people. Uh, what do we learn? The rich people are horrible people. Uh, I can take this attitude now that I'm about a week and a half away from being unemployed. Uh, screw the rich. Uh, screw them. Uh, they're always trying to step on the little man. I read The Iron Heel when I started this podcast. I know what it's all about. Uh, and I told you I'm going to be surly on this podcast. I can be. It's my show. Sucks to you. I know this is a long episode. Go away if you don't like it. So, with that, uh, thanks for listening, and I will uh, see you next week. Ah, uh, well, it appears you found me in the part of the podcast I hate the most where I tell you all about the places on the internet where you can find me. You can tell I hate this because of the sound effects making it sound like a stormy night uh, in the drawing room of the damned. Now, there's there's that. Uh, I, I, are you cool? I like cool people. It's the reason why I got involved in this business to begin with, just to meet cool people. Not losers. So if you're cool, uh, feel free to go over to my website, uh, nuzzlehouse.com. You can see a backlog of everything I've ever read, uh, along with episodes from Book Boys and uh, blah, blah, blah. You can also find me on Instagram, uh, which is uh, House Nuzzle. And conveniently enough, uh, Twitter, which is also at House Nuzzle. Annoyingly, YouTube made me pick a name instead of just a house nuzzle. So you got Glenn Nuzzles. So I guess you search for that if you want to watch a screen that doesn't do anything and just hear my voice. Uh, and since, uh, since I think you might be cool, you can always just email me directly. Glenn.nuzzles at gmail.com But don't, uh, don't email if you're a, a nerdlinger or a dork. Now, back to business. I can't believe I drank all of them already. There's one left.